no Mickey show. Momentarily for class solidarity Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency Greed from elites, oligarchs, stay fed Deep state, faith fed, everybody break bread Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion And it's melted by we live in time to build a new system Unionize labor rights, highlight the issue Talking heads left is best, the saga continues Continues. The No Miki Show Hello and welcome to the No Miki he show it is Wednesday, August 11th. And oh my goodness, what a day. Uh, <laughs> so if you've been following our show or, or my work um, over the last decade, really, uh, you would know that Andrew Cuomo is in New York politics or something that um, I've been fascinated with personally. And, and uh, it has all culminated. I can't even. I can't even express it. It's all culminated with uh, yesterday. Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, uh, has decided he's going to be resigning uh, as governor within two weeks. So many questions. So many things at stake here. But what I want to focus on, and we'll talk about a little bit later on the show with Gustavo Rivera, who's a senator from New York State, uh, who's been on the other end of Andrew Cuomo's wrath and his office's wrath for many years. But what I think. Um, we have to keep in mind here is Andrew Cuomo, the reason why he has been such a focus of mine and so many others who focus on New York politics for, for the better half of the last decade uh, is because there are so many scandals that if they were any attached to any other politician, Democrat or Republican, really, they would have stuck to him. You could start off with the fact that Andrew Cuomo ran after a slew of corruption scandals hit New York in which uh, the leaders of the Senate and the Assembly, who had been there for a long time, decades, were forced to step down and put in prison. Other Senate, state senators were put in prison. Malcolm Smith, uh, Sheldon Silver, uh, Assembly leader, uh, uh, Dean Scalos, the, the Senate leader, uh, the, 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 the controller, controller of New York, Alan Hevesy, was put in jail. So many different corruption scandals, not to mention, of course, the Elliot Spitzer scandal that arose and then David Patterson taking taking office, uh, which created an opening for Andrew Cuomo to come in, who had previously been attorney general of New York State. So Andrew Cuomo ran on an anti-corruption message. He vowed to take on corruption in New York State, coming out of the attorney general's office. And what did he do? He set up this thing called the Moreland Commission. The Moreland Commission was a commission that had members uh, appointed by the governor's office and the attorney general's office. And the goal was to investigate and weed out public corruption in New York State. Immediately, uh, the person who was put in charge had her own scandals attached uh, to her career and was a questionable choice to put in charge of being directing the Moreland Commission. There were many lawyers on the commission who later came out and spoke about how the commission conducted its business, how stories were put aside. And eventually what had happened was Andrew Cuomo decided to shut down the Moreland Commission as soon as the Moreland Commission looked into his office. Now, that led to U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara investigating what was left over from the Moreland Commission, the open uh, investigations. And... Those open investigations led to, some of them led to Andrew Cuomo's office. Eventually, Andrew Cuomo's inner circle, uh, most notably Joe Percoco, were investigated and convicted. And Joe 
Joe Prococo right now uh, is serving in prison, as well as some other folks who were involved in a pay-to-play scheme involving the billion dollars sent to Buffalo, New York, the billion dollars that went nowhere, that went to contracts. So that was the big story around Andrew Cuomo that probably should have, should have taken him down a few years ago. Now, since then, there have been at least nine other scandals. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But, you know, most recently, there's the nursing home scandal involving the cover up of the number of nursing home deaths and the moving of, of nursing home patients um, during the beginning of the pandemic. There is, of course, his book, the book on basically uh, succeeding <laughs> in handling COVID, um, the pandemic and where those book proceeds went. And of course, there's a sexual harassment. Now, I've read some comments online about why is that the sexual harassment scandal is what takes him down and not the other scandal. It's a great question, but we should not dismiss that. Now, I was on the Majority Report yesterday and I talked about the hate that so many women get online and how the right wing uh, has taken advantage of the infrastructure of media, social media, and uh, in particular, YouTube, in terms of how the algorithm feeds off of hate. And there has been a lot of conversation about how this hate is targeted at women and people of color, but specifically women of color in particular, um, those who are in leadership. The squad is a great example. This is not a new tactic of theirs. This is a tactic that they've been using since the beginning of Fox News and well, well, well previously. People who, historians who cover fascism know very well that this tactic is constantly used. And, and part of that is to silence people, uh, but of course, silencing women and outspoken women who are challenging authority is something that they're trying to do. And so what it does is it creates this ecosystem where you're feeding off of that hate, you're feeding off of that sexism. And what that also does is it makes it harder for women to speak up when they're faced with threats, sexism, attacks, or when they want to challenge authority because of the retaliation that they receive. So they all feed off of each other. And we become this giant echo chamber. And this, you know, this has been discussed over the last decades since uh, much of this media has been bought out by uh, larger monopoly, you know, uh, companies like Google, for instance, um, Facebook owning Instagram. And as they've had to monetize themselves um, and tether themselves to a business model uh, that, you know, deals with immediate short-term uh, profits. Now, why does this matter in the case of Andrew Cuomo? Because Andrew Cuomo and his administration are the embodiment of the establishment. And up until recently, and even now, it is so difficult for people to speak out against those who are in the establishment, especially if you're a lone voice, especially if you don't have institutional backing, especially if you don't have somebody who's going to help amplify your voice or get your story out there. And even then, people are questioned. And I say this because the sexual harassment allegations against Andrew Cuomo um, reveal that these behaviors were not new. That Andrew Cuomo, being somebody who has tremendous leverage and has had tremendous leverage over so much of the political ecosystem and the media 
because of the money that he gets, because of his ability to control the budget um, and 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 use the budget as, as leverage against senators and, and assembly members and barter. The fact that he had the IDC, which blocked so much in the Senate, and finally that was defeated. You know, all of all of those things that that, that creates that creates a power, a power, an ecosystem of power. And when you have that much power, so many people who are going to back you up and who are going to silence or reject or deny or call that person crazy. What was revealed during these, these, these last few months of the allegations was Lindsey Boylan, who um, was the first to come forward uh, with allegations against Andrew Cuomo. It was revealed that the office of Andrew Cuomo um, put out messaging and had discussions about how to make Lindsay Boylan look crazy and to, re- to release her file from when she was working in Andrew Cuomo's office. Now, in a court of law, none of that's relevant. Did it happen or did it not happen? And that's why the AG's report was so important. What Tish James put forward, you know, basically saying we've interviewed <laughs> hundreds of people at this point, and there are more allegations uh, that we were even aware of. Um, There are patterns of behavior, and there's the way that the administration handled these allegations, Um, and also handled people who came forward and went through the HR system that you're supposed to go through or went to their boss, their superior uh, in the office, to say, Andrew Cuomo touched me inappropriately, and to see how they were dismissed. This is systemic. When I was on the majority report yesterday, um, I didn't expect to be discussing what I discussed in terms of the hate that women receive online um, and how that plays into the science denial uh, aspect of messaging and how does it, how does that happen? Because when the right wing wants to get attention and build a base. And this happens, by the way, just in politics in general. You have messaging tactics. You say, okay, I am able, Cambridge Analytical, they did this so well. I'm able to target that this group of people is more amenable to a certain type of message. They're also amenable to these messages. And that's how we generate their support. And we find the right people to message those things. It's messaging strategy. It's how you build a base. It's how you solidify a base. But in the world that we live in today, money is to be made off of that hate. There's not a lot of money to be made off of science denial. There is, but it's not as much as there is about shooting hate at women and people of color. Donald Trump did so well, so well. But simultaneously, he also questioned COVID, questioned wearing masks as the, as the right wing is doing right now. That's just the effects. But they gin up their support by blaming the other. The other can be Mexicans. The other can be people of color. The other can be women. And that is something that is inherent. It's not new. It's just how it's being played out today. And so I want to personally just say I am so moved by the courage of the women who came forward um, in challenging Andrew Cuomo, knowing very well that he's retaliatory. 
I am so moved by the resilience, their grit, their voices. Um, and, you know, knowing very well that when Lindsay Boylan first spoke up, she couldn't get a reporter to report on it. She had to speak up on her own. And then later started talking to the press. Um, but that, of course, opened the space up for other women to come forward. But how many women don't have that opportunity? How many women are not just challenging, you know, it's just their boss or it's just their partner or, you know, and I'm not just talking about sexual harassment or just receive death threats because they're commenting online and they're being silenced. I mean, yesterday I got a lot of responses from people and thank you so much for, for the kind notes. I, I would, I would love to respond to all of you. Um, but many women and many men also um, mentioned the hate that they see online targeted at women. And many women said that they don't want to start YouTube shows. They don't want to, they don't even want to be online anymore because of that hate. So today I just want to say, I stand with Lindsay Boylan. I stand with Charlotte Bennett. I stand with State Trooper. I stand with every single woman that has come forward, named and unnamed, in speaking out against Andrew Cuomo and the power that he represents. Because taking on power, speaking up, has consequences. Whether you're speaking up online, you're speaking up on a show against authority, against institu institutions, against capital, against powerful people, is not easy. And so I think these women for coming forward. And I hope that the media can do a better job understanding how hard it is for so many people to come forward when they've experienced, um, experienced so much and just what comes with it. So uh, we're grateful for you today. This is a, a, a remarkable uh, day to be <laughs> on air. And um, and I look forward to seeing how New York uh, shifts under the leadership of Kathy Hochul, which we will talk about on another show. <laughs> so stay tuned for that. In the meantime, we have a great show today. Uh, first up, we have Shahid Buttar, who's going to talk about his experience uh, running for Congress and some of the legal uh, aspects that came out of his campaign. I think things actually does relate a lot to what we were discussing just now. Um, and then later we have Harvey Kay on. Professor Harvey Kay is on to talk about the big infrastructure bill and Josh Hawley's pseudo populism. And then a little bit later, right after that, I'm excited. I'm super, super excited to have John Nichols on, who's going to talk about the legacy of former AFL CEO, uh, President Richard Trumpka, who passed away um, last week. Uh, he died of a heart attack unexpectedly. And so we're going to talk about uh, you know, the legacy that he had and the effect he had on the AFL-CIO. And then finally, I bury the lead here, we have Senator Gustavo Rivera, uh, who's going to be on to talk about the Andrew Cuomo scandal. And so is Ben Dixon. What a show. We have a big show today, a rapid fire show. So thank you for sticking around. And if you aren't already, make sure to subscribe and like. Uh, join us on patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. You can join us at any level. We're super grateful to our audience. We are, we love the suggestions. I've been getting a lot of suggestions lately. And so thank you to everybody for your suggestions. Uh, and remember to check out the committee program on Mondays right here at 3 p.m. Eastern on our channel. All right, we'll be right back with Shahid Buttar. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Shahid Buttar is back. Thank you so much for joining us, Shahid. He is a former congressional candidate. Of course, he ran against Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. That is a, oof, a monumental task. And 
takes a lot of courage. That is the theme of the show, courage, right? Uh, Shahid is also former director of grassroots advocacy at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Shahid, um, thanks for joining us, first off. Thanks for having me, Thank you. Uh, so this is an interesting time because, um, you know, there, there've been a couple of articles that have come out saying that, uh, Nancy Pelosi has reversed her positioning on student debt. And of course it ties back to shocker donors. So, I mean, what what are your thoughts on this? How How do you think she gets away with this? I mean, I think she gets away with it ultimately because most journalists don't cover her. One of the things that made the revelation of her position here so interesting is that it was a press outlet exposing for once the chasm between the rhetoric and the reality of her policy. Now, there's at least three things here that jump out at me. So you named one of them, which is just the inordinate influence over federal policy asserted here by billionaire donors to the speaker who admit themselves that they had no concept of the issue. They only even learned that student debt existed from their daughter in the last few years. And it just illustrates how little billionaires share the challenges that constrain the rest of us. And so when you have billionaires telling millionaire policymakers what to support and what not to, that's a problem for the rest of us, one. Two is just the profound irony of the Democratic leader among congressional Democrats using Republican talking points to punch down and left at a signature progressive policy proposal that many of us were in the street 10 years ago advocating for. That was the central demand, one of them, there were many, but a central demand of the Occupy movement was student debt relief, where a decade later, And Nancy Pelosi is claiming that the only beneficiaries of a student debt relief policy would be student debt holders. Her whole argument was that, well, if you didn't send your kid to college, you might be upset with your taxes going to support somebody else's family who did. And that is such a blatant misconstruction of how both economics and education work. And it it frankly reflects an ignorance that we should not tolerate from people who wield such inordinate influence over federal policy. Economics would suggest that when we relieve $1.7 trillion in debt, constraining 43 million Americans, that the consumer purchasing power that will unleash will be a macroeconomic stimulus whose benefits will accrue far beyond the direct beneficiaries of the program. Similarly, education is a public good. It's not just the case that people who receive it benefit from it. Like macroeconomic stimulus, it benefits the broader economy. And so this is yet another demonstration of millionaires and billionaires not getting it because frankly, they don't need to get it, right? The the, the macroeconomic, go ahead. Well, it's interesting because I, I, I've thought about this a lot, um, you know, especially when Joe Biden first took office, the fact that he could just sign away public debt so easily. I mean, any public debt, frankly, it's, it's not just student debt. Um, it, it really like it, that part alone, not to mention, of course, the private loans. It's mind blowing to me because what you just said, something about macroeconomics, let's just break this down really simply for folks. So you, of course, cannot you you can't go bankrupt um, with your, your debt. You can't default. Right. There's there's defaulting on loans, but you can't truly there's there's no way out of it. You can't eliminate the debt that you can't. There's no bankruptcy like you can with credit cards or your home. You're stuck with the debt. You're stuck with your student just, loan debt. Just to make sure people grip one thing, you can certainly be driven into bankruptcy by student loans, but you can't use right. bankruptcy to relieve yourself of the burden of them. Just to make that explicit. Exactly. Exactly. So you have a situation in which um, so many Americans, uh, millions of Americans are forced to pay this first, their student loan debt. And of course, most millennials know that many have had to move back home uh, with their parents if they have that 
ability to do so. Um, credit cards, that's, that's a joke. I mean, you, you're, you're unable to qualify for credit cards. Say you decided to, you know, you, you weren't able to pay for school um, and you had to take a break. And if it's up to a certain point, you may not qualify to get back to school and take out more loans with that debt. That's just, you know, the basis there. One thing that really shocked me, though, is Nancy Pelosi has all this real estate developer money coming into her, you know, funds, right? I would think that real estate industry, any industry or the credit card industry with Joe Biden would be concerned about student debt because they want that liquidity. They want people to have that liquidity so that they can pay their rent, so that they can pay their credit card loans. This is what is so mind boggling to me. And I don't understand why they're they're holding out on student debt. It just it doesn't make any sense other than wanting to basically the way that 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 Donald Trump wanted to like wreck institutions, they just want to I, I don't I don't I don't know. It just seems like it's it's legitimate um annihilation of two generations who could be supporting a consumer economy. I fully agree with you. I want to sort of meet you at the tail end of the question and then circle back to where you started. So it certainly reflects a kind of interclass economic nihilism, a predation ultimately that we frankly should expect. People don't become billionaires by, you know, participating fairly in an economy. That's not how it works. And when you talked about the real estate money that is coming into Nancy Pelosi, she herself is a mega millionaire. She's worth over $100 million. And the class interests of policymakers absolutely inform and influence their legislative priorities. And we can see it demonstrated quite clearly here. I think that's ultimately why they're in that position is whatever economic plain common sense you're describing, it's not clear to her and her billionaire donors because those aren't pressures that they confront. At another level of abstraction, I'd say your analysis also holds, and we should be equally outraged by, the continuing refusal of the bipartisan establishment to meaningfully grapple with climate chaos, right? An enlightened self-interest with an expansive time horizon would suggest that we all share interest, not only in making sure that people have an opportunity to pay their bills without being driven into, you know, for instance, having to move back home with their parents, which an entire generation has done. That's, That's not just an interest for those people. Everybody in the economy, including the people to whom they owe money, like the banks, right, should have an interest in this liquidity. But precisely, I think the issue is that the enlightened, expansive self-interest that we might hope that institutions would develop, it's precisely what never has an opportunity to emerge because the time horizon on which we make decisions is so short. You know, whether it's like quarterly earning statements for Wall Street, uh, you know, it's the same thing on the congressional cycle. You know, people make decisions on a two-year horizon instead of a generational one. And I want to go back to where you started. You noted and this is the third thing that Pelosi got wrong is sort of where you, you know this point that Biden has the authority to relieve a trillion point seven. That's a staggering number with the stroke of a pen. And Pelosi's recent position, interestingly enough, contends that he doesn't have the authority. And this is problematic for lots of reasons. It's not just the case that she says student debt relief is a bad idea because she, Pelosi, doesn't understand economics or education. She is also saying, because she doesn't understand the Constitution, that the president can't uh, follow the recommendation, even if he does come to support it. And what's interesting is Pelosi cites for that proposition a Betsy DeVos decision from the Trump administration. And so this the sheer hypocrisy and, and craven 
bait and switch. Oh, we fought Trump. Oh, we impeached Trump. Oh, we expanded his surveillance powers. Oh, we're going to use his secretary of education's rules to constrain the Biden administration and punch down and left at a generation of student debt holders. It gets even better than this or worse. When Pelosi says that Biden can't do it, what she's effectively saying is that only I, as the Speaker of the House, only Congress can do it, right? So she's territorially grabbing the issue while simultaneously saying she's not going to do anything about it. And that is the most cowardly kind of pattern that we see in Washington emerge from both parties, but it is particularly problematic at a time like this when Democrats wield the House, the Senate, and the White House, when they can bargain against themselves and you know shove policies under the table with this sort of three-card money, oh, they get to do it, no, no, they get to do it, no, you can't do it, only I can do it, but I'm not gonna, it's it's really just crass. And, and it reveals the corruption that I think we've all come to expect from Washington. Um. Let's shift gears just a little bit here, because uh, you, of course, ran for Congress against Nancy Pelosi last year and uh, and came up short, but, you know, ran a really spectacular campaign. You built a strong movement, stuck to the message. You know, look at look at how much you understand. Uh, I mean, listen, it's, we interview a lot of candidates, obviously, on the show and have met a lot of candidates in other work. You really understand the issues inside and out. Um, and that's extremely commendable, but also very dangerous, I say, uh, because you, you know, when you're able to point a finger at the money or the power structures and uh, really get to the heart of why somebody is, uh, quote unquote, you know, in power, um, especially in, in a district that probably has more progressives than than folks and also people with a lot of money as well. But, you know, she she puts herself out there as as a progressive and elite Republicans put her out as an elite progressive. Um so what happened? You are now suing the San Francisco Chronicle uh, over coverage of your campaign. Can you, can you give us a little bit of a background on yeah. what happened? Let me start with what happened, then I'll get to the lawsuit. So we won 81,000 votes, more than any campaign to ever challenge Pelosi and the generation that she's held the seat. And we forced half a dozen policy concessions that ended up shifting not just her vote, but the entire House of Representatives. So we were sort of the tail wagging the biggest dog in politics for a while. And the week after, the San Francisco Chronicle, the paper of record, printed a headline above the fold, Pelosi ignoring calls for a debate. They published not one, but two stories falsely accusing me of sexual misconduct. And it's interesting in the context of Cuomo finally resigning to observe the profound double standard, the continuing double standard between powerful white incumbents who serve corporate interests. It takes decades to hold them accountable for predation that has been revealed by multiple people. Uh, you know, in the case of Biden, you see like video evidence of the way he like, you know, fondles young girls and never will there be any attention to those issues. While the first hint of accusation, however implausible, however refuted by evidence and whistleblowers, gets printed by the paper of record within 48 hours when targeting brown Muslim immigrants challenging icons of power. And you know, there's this debate about critical race theory and whether or not students should be taught it. I would simply wish that journalists might study it because the profound abdication of press ethics in San Francisco didn't just impact me. I was the subject of these stories, but I was not the target of the disinformation campaign that planted them and organized them and spread them across the international press. The targets for disinformation are always the voters and the democratic process. And ultimately the lawsuit that we filed against the San Francisco Chronicle a month ago it is a defamation lawsuit, but the purpose of the suit is to defend election integrity. The 2020 election was already compromised by disinformation spread by the Democratic Party. 
and operatives loyal to the establishment. I'm aiming here both to defend the integrity of the 2022 election and to ensure that candidates of color are evaluated based on the content of our character and not through the lens of weaponized fabrication, privileged and indulged by newspapers of record, more inclined, and this is the key here, you know, it's, it's not as if there wasn't newsworthy things to talk about last year, but even when the skies were red at high noon due to wildfires, even when we're in the middle of a pandemic, and I'm the first Democrat in a generation to be on the ballot for this seat, not a single journalist wanted to talk to me about the Green New Deal or Medicare for All. The only thing they wanted to talk to me about were the figments of some people's imaginations that were planted, again, fabricated and weaponized. And this is a piece I wanted to draw out here. I'm not the only candidate to encounter this, right? Nina Turner just encountered it in Ohio, lies by Democratic Party operatives punching down and left. Alex Morse encountered it in Massachusetts. Uh, Isan Lecky encountered it in New I York. I encountered it. Right? You encountered it. I'm thinking about like the- Seriously. I mean, Politico put out ads uh, for the article that they placed on me in which, by the way, we sent a legal letter and they said, we don't deal with- uh, we don't deal, our lawyers do not respond until the lawsuit is filed, knowing very well it's very hard to prove defamation. Oh, yeah. And we marked 40, 48 factual errors in the article that they put national ads in saying, who is Nomi Kikans? And then on top of that all, it was the story, you know how they do the political playbook. It was the title for the New York playbook, the uh, lobbyist playbook, and the national playbook. And then the ecosystem of Nina Turner and all these, or not, excuse me, New York Tandon, you said Nina Turner. New York Tandon um, spread this all. And it's, it's um, but it's exactly what you're saying. It's, this is not, these aren't new tactics. These aren't new strategies. These are um, new platforms and it can happen in a much faster way. And I think you know, I say this, I'm glad that you're doing this because we also have to, as the left, have to have a, 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 you know, more conversations about this because it's not always, you know, Alex Morse was very lucky in that the story, you know, came out what actually was happening behind the scenes. Isan Lakey did not come out. Uh, Nina Turner, she has a platform large enough and a movie that there, there, there can be a conversation about that. Ours never, never came out because our lawyers told us we couldn't talk about it because we had a lawsuit against one of the people. <laughs> I mean, you know very well when you're in the middle of litigation or, or, or potential litigation, you have to be quiet sometimes. Yeah. And so I, this is I think this is very powerful. I appreciate that. And I'm so sorry for what you went through. It, it really does just reflect the abdication by the press establishment of its constitutional role. We rely on the press as a polity for truth or at least some semblance of it. And Democrats would have you think that disinformation is an exclusively GOP phenomenon. But the problem here is that disinformation is an establishment tool used by both corporate parties to defend their leaders from challenges. And in our context, you know, one of the things that, that particularly disappointed me here when I was accused falsely of any number of things was the particularly racial dimension of false accusation when it's sexual misconduct allegations targeting people of color. And I'm not the first person to be falsely accused reflecting that pattern, nor have I been the last. Multiple leftists of color in San Francisco have been taken down by a network of scheming party operatives who remain at large and continue to peddle their lies in public. And the co-optation of grassroots groups by people seeking careers in a party is the particular pattern that I just want to cite for people anywhere. The grassroots groups have legitimacy because they're led by grassroots people. And when you appoint leaders to boards of directors or chairs of organizations who are, for instance, aides to legislators, right, 
like local policymakers, they then become beholden to the establishment that they're seeking careers in, and they make their organizations beholden to those establishments. But grassroots groups on the left shouldn't become beholden to establishments, right? There's a real danger of adopting the seeming professionalization of putting policy aids in steering positions in grassroots organizations, because they're then in positions to effectuate their boss's interests. And I was interesting in our case last year, and I think this might happen in other places too, to see local politicians lining up to take shots at me based on lies peddled by their friends. And racist lies, mind you. And when you have local politicians peddling racist lies in public to score political points, that's a problem, not for me and not just my supporters. That is a problem for our democracy. And I mean, I'm really grateful for you covering this because it has struck me not only did the false stories get amplified far and wide, but the real story, frankly, has been almost impossible to get out. There is a whistleblower here, an elected member of the Democratic Party's governing body in San Francisco. She sits on a legislative body with Nancy Pelosi and Dianne Feinstein, an Afro-Latina who was bullied and threatened, harassed, hacked, and now facing smears herself for coming forward with the truth when I was smeared. And when you have not only men of color being smeared, but then women of color being bullied and smeared by Democratic Party operatives and their stories never hit the press, every journalist who wrote the false stories about me last year continues to suppress her voice. And I want to call out The Intercept here, particularly, because I don't frankly expect much from the San Francisco Chronicle. It's one reason why I'm suing them at the moment is to hold them accountable to some bare modicum of press ethics. But The Intercept claims to be an investigative outlet. And in the same way that you wrote your 48-point memo to Politico, we had an 18-page memo to The Intercept, which explained all of the factual errors in their first piece, which ignored evidence, it completely ignored whistleblowers, it privileged the voices of these Democratic Party operatives, the narrative of the story conflicted with the facts in the story. They've revised the story four different times, incidentally, takes them two months to publish a new one basically exposing that the first one was all based on lies. They bury it on a Friday. They bury the lead because the whole point of the article, they expose in it that people I had hired and then replaced falsely accused me of sexual misconduct. And then those same people who are loyal to the Democratic Party establishment, who got appointed to the board of directors of an organization that endorsed Pelosi, just revealing the political interests and machinations at stake here, those people were never corrected. Every paper, The Intercept, never corrected itself. And the whistleblower ended up publishing her own findings a year later. And when whistleblowers, silenced for a year, bullied by local political establishments, then have to write their own stories a full year after the events transpire because the press continues to suppress them, that, again, is not just a problem for the people who are silenced and the communities that they defend. It is a problem for our democracy. And I would simply implore journalists in San Francisco to show up for work. Well, I also think that journalists just need to understand how politics works because you know, you're know you saying this, I'm having an aha moment myself because uh, there was an ecosystem of people spreading, and they're all men, by the way, um, all white men, uh, that were spreading misinformation, not misinformation, absolute lies, um, online about me and creating little, like, like they wrote like medium blogs and, uh, and then echoed each other. And guess what? They all got appointed <laughs> yep. after the election to something, you know, with barely an, maybe no experience at all. Um, 
other than being online. Uh, and, and in the case of, of one of our stories, um, the lawyer for my opponent sought out a person in our campaign who had been uh, effectively laid off for some for for harass, sexually harassing me. It was a horrifying situation. Um, and stalking me, by the way. And had that lawyer and that person wrote a complaint against me that went to Politico and the press wow. to publish it. And Politico and the press, any reporter in their right mind, New York Post and New Politico, the only ones that covered it, the, any reporter in their right mind would say, oh, isn't it weird that somebody that was laid off for sexual harassment and somebody who works for her opponent as a lawyer are working together and wrote this based on, by the way, nothing invented? And they took it at face value. And then when we said that, We'd say this would never be, never in a court of law would this ever be admissible. Immediately the judge would laugh, mm -hmm. would laugh. But then, so we had to come out with a lawsuit. And then of course I couldn't give my side of the story at that point because I know the job's done, doesn't matter. And then everybody who, who spit that out there, all those allegations were all rewarded with, you know, lame volunteer board positions. Like, oh, you're so, you know, was it worth it? Right. I hope these people find ways to sleep at night. It is so destructive to movements, to democracy, to communities, to weaponize accusation in the service of one's own career. Ultimately, the it's building is the project before us. We have to build coalitions. We have to build bridges. We have to educate people. And it is way easier to tear things apart. And, and if people do bad things, they should be held accountable. I'm all for that. But this crass pattern of making things up about people and then weaponizing them for political purposes, in, in all fairness to my critics... Uh, I don't think that they are bigots. I don't think that they are proud white supremacists. I think that they are inadvertent white supremacists because they weaponized lies for political purposes, but that doesn't make it any less racist, right? And, and that's one of the points about critical race theory is that, for instance, when you accuse people of color of sexual misconduct falsely, you can't do it without implicating white supremacy. It is baked in the accusation. And then you add these double standards in the press. And I'm really, again, grateful that Cuomo is finally going down. People deserve to be held accountable when they've done bad things. But when I see Alex Morse, you know, kept out of Congress and effectively like chased out of town by false accusation, that's again, it's not just a problem for him. He was doing a really good job as the mayor of Holyoke. He could have been an incredibly effective member of Congress representing his community in Washington. And he's not doing that now because not just a bunch of people saw fit to promote disinformation, but because people in the press failed their jobs and did not check their facts suppressed whistleblowers, ignored evidence, deferred to establishments. And the crisis in journalism that has replaced journalism with stenography is a problem. And it's a problem when journalists stenographically copy whatever executive branch officials say. It's also a problem when they take whatever party officials say, especially when they then silence party officials like Gloria Berry, who try to stand up for the truth and face retaliation for it. There was a time when the press sought out whistleblowers because they are sources of truth. And the whole point of journalism is to inform the public. And I do fear that journalists have come, effectively become tribalized. And the alliance with, of so many journalists with the democratic establishment threatens their own role. You know, I, I should make this point too. Our last um, president, um, may he uh, never come back to public life. He was infamous for demonizing the press, right? Talking about fake news, fake this, and the fact of the matter is that when the press publishes fake news, they play into his hands. They play into this crisis in our democracy. I am trying ultimately to defend the press from itself. And, and that's one of the facets of our lawsuit that I'm most proud of. Oh, well, 
well, much of this is is because I'm glad that we're having this discussion, especially in a day like today. Um, much of it is because uh, in the last 10 years, 15 years since the economic crisis, um, thousands of newsrooms have completely been eliminated across the country. Uh, journalists don't get the same training when they don't have those newsrooms. So they're not coming up through state houses, city houses. It's not, it, it's just, it's not as um it's not as diverse. It's not the, the, this, the, the field is not as diverse. It's not as trained. It's not as experienced. And when they go into places, like I have friends of mine who are reporters who reported at the New York post and the progressive. And they're like, well, that's, we didn't have anywhere else to go. And so where are they learning how to be reporters? I was very grateful that I had a, a wonderful coach uh, in Wayne Barrett, but you know, he passed away and they don't make them like him anymore. I don't know who the Wayne Barrett of our generation is. I don't think they exist. I think there are people who want to be like that. But at the end of the day, it requires really understanding how to source a story, how to fact check. And when you're putting these crazy deadlines, um, you know, the, 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 the business model of journalism, uh, the demands of journalism, and also the people who are chosen to be reporters at a lot of these publications, many of them will have conservative backgrounds, as you'll see come up all the time. I mean, there's this big story with this, the CNN reporter who, uh, I forgot her name, um, recently was called out because she was working for the Daily Caller and had written something previously that was eliminated from the Daily Caller because it was very biased. Now she's at CNN and you wouldn't know that. Um, so ultimately, I mean, I think this is a really good conversation and I, I'm really happy that you came on and that you're talking about this openly and you've pushed me to talk about it openly. I, I really, I, I do what they're, they want you to do is to stay quiet. And I have not spoken enough, enough about this because it's hurtful and it's harsh. And when I do, I just feel the effects immediately. But it is painful to go through. I know what that feels like. And I'm so sorry you had to deal with this. Same to you. But I mean, but it's important that we talk about these things because they are there are patterns. And as Brad, our, our producer said, normal folks don't know what these are and they need to be taught to look out for them. They need to understand, you know, folks need to understand, especially in the movement, that there are tactics being used to break us apart and to delegitimize people and to smear folks. And you know, they may, it may not always look the same or sound the same depending on the person, but um, it exists. And we have to be really conscious of, of how, um, you know, how this ecosystem works. And Caitlin Collins, yes, it was Caitlin Collins. That was who it was at CNN. Oh, okay. Chad, thank you. Oh, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Well, if you had a minute, I just wanted to yes, add, you, you don't do the business model of journalism. And, you know, I'm, I'm excited to see journalists around the country unionizing the threat that private equity poses to our democracy by hollowing out news bureaus around the country is real. And, and I do think of this crisis in journalism as reflecting a broader crisis in the economy where we kind of started. You know, the student debt crisis is, is attended to this like, consolidation among so many industries that have just eliminated opportunities in so many different sectors. So thanks again for having me on. It was really good to be with you. Thanks, Shahid. Very, very important um, conversation and really appreciate your work and your courage. And uh, I can't wait to hear how this, this plays out. We'll be in touch. Take care, Shahid. Thank you, sister. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Harvey Kay is back for a quickie segment with us. We have a packed day today. Uh, he's, of course, a former professor, professor emeritus, I should say, at University of Wisconsin, Green Bay, an author of many great books, including Thomas Paine and the Promise of America, The Fight for Four Freedoms, Take Hold of Our History, Make America Radical Again, FDR and Democracy, and so many others. Uh, Harvey, oh my gosh. Rapid fire, the infrastructure bell. Okay, so we all know that we've waited months 
months for some action on the part of this administration and the Congress, which is, I believe, controlled by the Democrats or at least dominated by the Democrats. Okay, I say that sarcastically. And finally, and by the way, they they have failed to do anything about voting rights. They have failed to do anything about the PRO Act, though we're told that some elements of the PRO Act might get built into the next of these infrastructure plans, the the one that'll go through reconciliation. Anyhow, this first one, the first infrastructure plan that's come forward and been approved, been passed, at least in the Senate, it's going to sit and wait in the House, that that this one is the, in quotes, bipartisan plan. But what's interesting about this bipartisan plan is that by the time it became the bipartisan plan, the original American, I think it was called the American Jobs Plan, uh, a lot of the really critical elements were either reduced or not even included. So what we get in the end is decidedly a welcome bill if it goes forward and, and passes through both houses. And how and the big question will be whether or not the House will see will balk. OK, if they can't do the reconciliation plan in tandem with this one. Well, anyhow, what, what's interesting is that if you turn on the TV or read the media, you know, the mainstream media and the liberal media, you'd think this was like the beginning now, finally, of the new FDR moment. In fact, you know, I, and no one can argue that we need it. However, what's really sad, and this is due, this I can say, I, I owe a lot to David Dayan at the American Prospect, who really on a daily basis, he and his team have stayed on top of what's in, what's out. And, and this morning I woke up and I read today's newsletter from the American Prospect by David Dan. And as he makes very clear, this is a, an American plan, an infrastructure plan that the big telecom companies are probably right now salivating over. OK. And why is that? That seems like a big stretch there. Okay, well, for there is nothing FDR like about this plan. Let me say that. So let me first tell you what FDR did, and then you'll see what when I get to that. I'll tell you quickly. In the 1930s, in the New Deal, there really was massive, massive investment in infrastructure, but a lot of that investment was actually pursued not by way. There, a lot of it was pursued through contracts with corporations, but a lot of it was pursued by way of municipal initiatives cooperatives and other kinds of small d democratic initiatives. And the most famous one among those would be the Rural Electrification Agency. And I want to highlight that because really what is missing from this project now is going to be the kinds of things that we really do need the Democrats to address. So the Rural Electrification Agency was created because the big utility companies of the 1930s did not believe it was profitable enough to go and lay out electric lines, electric power lines, so that family farmers and others in the South would have electricity. I mean, we have to remember, they didn't have any electricity, okay? Okay, so one imagined that this big infrastructure plan, given that the Democrats do so poorly in rural areas, Okay, that this plan would have included an effort to address that need that created the kinds of cooperatives that the Rural Electrification Agency created. 400 cooperatives were created under the New Deal and several hundred thousand farmers got electricity. Okay, so now what do we see? Well, apparently it's been set up so that, first of all, the original bill that was going forward before it was, you know, handled 
or mishandled, basically enabled cooperatives to be established or municipalities to take charge. But there are any there, are, I think, like two dozen states where that's actually against the law. And this bill originally wow. was got, yes, and in and this bill was originally, uh, this is all part of the corporate order we've been living in for these last 40 years. One of the things is that the original bill said that that all those laws would no longer be acceptable. Uh, they would be un, un, uh, they would be illegal to block such initiatives. But that was now left out. So what it's going to happen is there are going to be these huge grants probably made to states, and then the states will, in essence, license corporations to go in and lay down the broadband if they if if it ever does happen. And what they've done is, number one, look, I can't tell you who's corrupt and who's not corrupt, but it's an open door for corruption. Number one, OK, to, to allow these big corporations. The other thing is, is that in so many places, you and I know that the big telecom companies are literally monopolizing broadband, you know, just as they monopolize everything else having to do with the telecom industry. Literally, so, as you said that, your 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 it just broke up as you said that oh i did (laughs) well maybe maybe the right as long as i had to point that out (laughs) as long as i didn't get electrocuted or my ears didn't get blasted okay oh my gosh i mean the point about this is yeah so so look there's going to be vast sums of money that are going to improve a lot of infrastructure in america this first bill if it if it makes its way through ultimately But it's also the case that instead of it being the kind of small d democratic program create, you know, or set of initiatives, we've now sort of we're going to give more money, more money as the Obama administration did with health care. Now we're going to do it in expanding the very needs of Americans for broadband. And and it's, it's, it's just kind of outrageous. And by the way, No one expected people expected better because within the last few months, they've talked about what's called a new Brandeisian movement, a new Brandeis movement. Brandeis was the Supreme Court justice who before who basically favored competition, did not favor allowing big monopolies and oligopolies to dominate industries. He actually said, I wrote it. I have it here by my desk. We can have democracy in this country or we can have great wealth concentrated in the hands of a few but we can have both. And they appointed to the head of the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, uh, Lena Khan, who was seen as a Brandeisian. And in the attorney general's office, assistant attorney general, uh, Jonathan Cantor, I believe, another Brandeisian, they assumed that this was going to be a, a signal to the cor- to big capital that the days of big capital running the country or big corporations were coming. Well, so far, it looks like bullshit. OK, so we'll see. It's it's a it's essential that we address the infrastructure. There are better ways of doing it to be to really cultivate competition, empower communities. And and by the way, here's the last image. Imagine if the trucks that are going to be sent out to create these things, they're all going to say the, the Comcast or Spectrum or whatever else. Instead of saying, OK, this is a public initiative. OK, I mean. What can I say? Not to mention the fact that they've also now cut out certain elements of taxing corporations and the wealthy in order to pay for these. So I'm kind of not happy about this today. And I think more people should be made aware of it. That was a new segment I'm calling Harvey Rants catches us up on everything in 10 minutes or less. I didn't even need to ask questions. You just went for it. Well, I know we have a limited amount of time. I'm just going to get it out. 
Brad says, summary, Harvey isn't happy. <laughs> Neither am I. Harvey, uh, Professor Harvey K., we really appreciate you. We'll see you next week on the show as well. We'll do a longer, a deeper dive because I promise you that. That was. Okay. Uh, take care of yourself. I look forward to seeing you again. Great. Thanks. Take care. All right. You guys know I love my Sunset Lake CBD. Sunset Lake CBD is a farmer-owned company, a farmer-owned company that ships craft CBD products directly from their farm in Vermont to your door. They have all types of products, something for everybody, gummies, tinctures, salves, coffee, fudge, dog biscuits, lotions. Go check it out because all of their products help deal with stress, aches and pains, um, and there's good juju around it because it was originally a farm that was the Ben and Jerry's farm. So I feel like there's like good energy around that. Um, and not only that, you know, they, they do really amazing work to help enhance rural economies um, and sustainable agriculture and create meaningful employment in their community. Their employees make a minimum wage, starting wage of $15 an hour, and their employees own the majority of the company. Uh, and not only that, this is a big, big deal. They have helped us so much. Uh, they support independent media like the Majority Report, like the David Packman Show and our show, The Nomi Key Show. Um, I talk about the products all the time. Their tinctures help me with sleep. It's so, so, so important. I've been on a crazy schedule lately, and it's been really helpful to help me sleep, um, especially she was through my, my aches and pains because we're getting a little older here, but I love to take the tincture before I go to bed every night to help me sleep through the night. And when I don't have it, oh my gosh, do I feel it? I, that's when I really realize the difference it makes when I take CBD before, Sunset Lake CBD before I go to bed. Uh, but you too can go check out their products with a 20% off discount right now. If you go to sunsetlakecbd.com and you type in promo code NOMI, N-O-M-I, you get 20% off of your entire order. Go to sunsetlakecbd.com and type in NOMI for 20% off. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. John Nichols is here. He's the national affairs correspondent for The Nation, and he is the author of The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, The Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's Anti-Fascist, Anti-Racist Politics, and many, many others, of course. Uh, this is not his, that was not his first book by far. Uh, okay, so John, you wrote this week about the passing, the sudden passing of AFL-CIO President uh, Richard Trumka. So, um, who is a complicated person? He is, is think, you know, we, we cover uh, labor on the show quite a bit. And uh, this was, you know, this is a very significant moment of his passing because there's already this conversation about who's, who was going to take over his legacy. Um, and then he passed away of a heart attack. So I guess I'm just to start off with who was Richard Trumka? Well, Richard Trumka was in many ways a classic American labor leader. He was uh, the son of a coal miner who went down into the mines as uh, a very young man, worked the black seam, as they say, in southwestern Pennsylvania. Uh, but at the same time that he was a miner, he was taking night classes and, and going to law school, and he became a labor lawyer. And in his 20s, he joined the uh, staff of the United Mine Workers of America at a time that I think a lot of folks uh, today couldn't even understand, but it was it was an it was an amazing moment when uh, the union had had corrupt leadership. There were assassinations, uh, violent attacks. This was a this was a, a, a 
a time, although it was taking place in the 70s, that threw back in many ways to the 1930s or the 1920s. And Trumpka came into all that as a reformer, as a, a member of a, a group of young miners and their allies who sought to change the union. And in 1982, at the age of 33, he became uh, one of the youngest labor leaders in the United States, leading one of the oldest unions. Uh, and instead of just kind of like moving into that role, he did something that was actually quite radical. He arrived at the time that uh, Ronald Reagan was attacking unions, uh, had just fired all the air traffic controllers and was doing a lot of other assaults on unions. And he focused a lot on that, arguing for a militant response to Reagan. But then he did something else, too. He argued that the labor movement had to look beyond itself. It couldn't just look at its internal fights and at its fights here at home. It had to become internationalist. And in really a groundbreaking move, he established an office of solidarity with black coal miners and, and miners in general in South Africa and uh, threw himself and his union into the anti-apartheid movement. In fact, when the miners in South Africa called for an international boycott of Royal Dutch Shell, Trunka didn't just endorse it, he became the chairman of the boycott in the US, traveling the country as an advocate for uh, an anti-apartheid stance that put him in solidarity with a lot of really militant activists across this country. And he expanded on that when he, uh, when here in the States, uh, the Pittston miners went on strike in the late uh, 80s over in Virginia. It was a huge strike. Uh, he organized a strike that was unlike anything that had been seen in the modern age. It had thousands of people coming in from around the country, huge solidarity camps, putting women into leadership roles uh, in supporting the struggle. Uh, in, really, in many ways, it really uh, anticipated the Occupy Wall Street moment. And he got a lot of credit for that and was seen as sort of this remarkable strategist, became a leader of the AFL-CIO, uh, and then in about 12 years ago became the president of the union or of the union federation. And it, while I think that as leader of the AFL, he certainly took criticism and some of it uh, from very sincere folks who said he didn't do enough in, in particular areas. And I think that that's a, that's a discussion to be had. Uh, but it's important to note that he brought a lot of that that activist sensibility into this role and really transformed the AFL in a lot of ways. Uh, it was under Trumpka that the AFL uh, abandoned many of its past stances as regards immigrants and became much more supportive of immigrant rights, that it embraced Black Lives Matter, that it supported LGBTQ rights. And so there was a lot of this build out uh, of the AFL as a, a movement organization rather than simply a uh, just a, a narrowly based labor grouping. Which is, I think, this cannot be emphasized enough, how that, like, if just a couple of years ago, was, was very hard to do even in democratic politics. It was hard for Barack Obama to do, in, especially in a union, um, a union that, that, of course, now probably has much more diverse membership than it did 40 years ago. Uh, but we're still dealing with a lot of of folks who some probably voted for Trump, maybe for these reasons. Uh, we don't know for sure. But um, I mean, it is it, it was a very significant thing to do. And, and did he face face a lot of pushback uh, oh, at yeah. the time? It, it was now the interesting thing about Trump. And I think we have to acknowledge up front. He looks like an old fashioned trade union leader. You know, he was this big, you know, 
kind of bulky guy spoke in, uh, you know, pretty blunt terms and stuff like that. And uh, but he was also a labor intellectual. There's simply no doubt of that. A brilliant guy. And so he sort of used his own image as a tool to to move labor, I think, in much more progressive directions. One of the striking things he did in 2008 was to go out and travel to all the major unions, but particularly to a lot of the unions in battleground states like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, uh, Michigan, which had been very supportive of Hillary Clinton and very rejectionist as regards Barack Obama. And, uh, and he bluntly said, look, I know there are people here who are thinking of maybe not voting for Barack Obama because he's a black man. I understand that there are people who uh, are entertaining that notion. And he said very, again, very bluntly, uh, too often our union halls, which should be places of solidarity, have become breeding grounds of bigotry. And so he bluntly addressed and assaulted a problem that was that was real. And uh, and it was very powerful. His speeches at that time, I think, did have an impact. Barack Obama himself gave uh, Richard Trump credit for really kind of moving out uh, the arguments for uh, Obama's election in 2008, opening it up and really doing a lot to create uh, the coalitions that made it possible to uh, not just win the presidency, but to win substantial majorities in the House and the Senate. It was actually a very optimistic and very hopeful moment. It did not play out as as hoped. Uh, And this is an important thing to understand. Trump himself became very angry with the Democratic Party. Uh, He gave some speeches in 2011, 2012, after Republicans had taken back much of the Congress and said, you know, look, you guys aren't doing this right. This is this is really problematic. And uh, he was especially angry that uh, the national Democrats did not put sufficient support behind the uprisings in Wisconsin and Ohio, where workers uh, were really battling for their lives against uh, anti-labor laws. And Trump uh, called them out. He called out Democrats on that. Uh, And some of his speeches from that period are, are really significant. Some of the more significant, I think, addresses and arguments made by an independent labor leader arguing for labor to be, you know, much more combative as regards both political parties. Now, the tragedy of it is that the Republican Party moved so far to the right and circumstances got so desperate that um, that a lot of the labor movement sort of threw in with the Democratic Party uh, out of this fear that if the Republicans came to power, they would really be devastated. And uh, and so I think that that uh, there was to my mind, there is an ongoing battle within labor over this question, right? Uh, do you work to get a party elected that you hope will do nice things for you once they're in office? Or do you pour your resources into organizing and building strength so that you can put pressure on both parties? And uh, Trump wavered between both those stances. You know, I think he tried to hold together two parts of the labor movement. I think often very nobly, and I give him a lot of credit for a lot of what he did, but he didn't settle that issue. And now that he has passed, that issue is very much to the forefront. Um, I happen to be in the camp that believes that labor has to put a lot more pressure on the Democratic Party and has to demand a lot more of it. Uh, but that's not, you know, there's, there's a real uh, tension over that issue. And frankly, the efforts to replace Trump are going to bring a lot of that to the head. So um, before we wrap in a couple of 
minutes. Can we just talk about what, what that's looking like? I know we've talked about the potential prior to his passing of, of who would take over. Um, in the meantime, his, his, it was secretary is Liz Schuler. Secretary uh, Treasurer Liz Schuler is, yes. uh, is the, um, is currently the interim head of the AFL. And it was also, likely, she was also going to be likely running as well. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it is likely that the exec board um, will in short, relatively short order, um, make her the, again, the, the head until the end of his current term, you know, until this, through this period. Uh, but I don't know that that necessarily settles it uh, because there is, there really is a, a, a tension there, as I mentioned a moment ago. And there are a lot of people who would like to see uh, another more militant uh, individual take the lead. And that is uh, Sarah Nelson, who is the head of the flight attendance union and uh, has been an incredibly outspoken advocate for uh, a much more militant stance on the part of the AFL. And Nelson got a lot of credit a couple of years ago when the Trump administration was, and, and its Republican allies were talking about shutting down the federal government. And Nelson really leveraged uh, a series of stances within the airline industry to force the hand of uh, the Republicans and, and prevail. She was very successful there. And so there's a, a, a group of folks who see her as not just a, a dynamic young leader, but also a very smart strategist. And so uh, this is it's not to necessarily say that that Schuler is a bad player. There are many people who will argue that Schuler has has a lot of skills and, and good arguments for her. But there is this interest in Sarah Nelson that that is certainly it, it can't be denied. It's 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 out there. And um, remember, the labor movement, uh, for all of its flaws, has indeed had these moments where there are elections for its leadership, and it has had transformative moments. You had one when John Sweeney pushed aside the old leadership, and that was very important. Frankly, it, it was significant when Trumka came to the leadership. Now, uh, I think it would be very healthy for the labor movement to have an election, to have a, a real you know, debate about uh, who, what it's going to be going forward. And um, and. However, that sorts out. I mean, obviously, if it's a democratic process, uh, hopefully it sorts out to be the will of you know, the people who are engaged in the movement itself. But um, I do think that the last thing I would say on it, or at least perhaps the most important thing, is that this country desperately needs a militant labor movement right now. Um, as we come out of the pandemic, maybe go back into it. It's this very complicated moment as regards covid as we deal with the economic issues that, that arose from it. And frankly, as we have a democratic administration that, that sometimes moves to the left, sometimes moves to the center, gets pushed and pulled a lot. Uh, labor as a militant organization, both pushing the Democrats to be better, but also uh, being out there in the streets, making a lot of noise, making bring a lot of energy to fights uh, for people who have been frankly dispossessed and often harmed uh, a lot, not just by the pandemic, but by their government. Um, I think it's critical. And so uh, although there will be those who will say, hey, you know, don't we can't have any debates right now. we got to just move into the fight of the moment. I would argue the debates right now uh, could be some of the healthiest and most vital things that could happen because out of those might come a, uh, a sort of a revitalized and strengthened labor movement that's ready to to push for, frankly, what's needed. 
And they have leverage right now too. I mean, militancy is wonderful, but I look, I look at what just happened in New York. I mean, uh, Andrew Cuomo was, even though he had a lot of, of labor backing over the years, uh, when labor pulled away from him, I mean, he has, he's been a, he was a proponent for charter schools. He fought teachers unions. Uh, he's sided with real estate. Uh, he's gone to war with many unions. And now there's an opening with Kathy Hochul, who Definitely size of Andrew Cuomo, but does not have that strong. I mean, there's, there's she's she's undoubtedly in a weaker position. Uh, could have been anybody, not just, you know, anybody who's taken over from Andrew Cuomo um, is in a weaker position to to really stand with big, big money and interest. So I think there's a great opportunity across the country and especially with Biden with the pandemic. Yeah, of course, there's tremendous opportunities in New York. And um, and one hopes that, you know, look, the transition from Cuomo to Kathy Hochul will uh will be a good one. Look, Kathy Hochul's inheriting a lot of a lot of problems. I mean, it's it's like Cuomo, Cuomo wasn't the great solver of, of all uh, issues. He actually is leaving a mess all over the place. And so as a result, um, she's got challenges. Uh, she needs to rise to that occasion. If she doesn't, if she isn't, you know, if it isn't right, then Democrats should be more than ready for a primary and to, to get somebody in there who can do it. Um, this is not to talk Hochul down, but it is rather to say, um, you know, we we are in critical moments in New York and other places, states across this country where it's got to be sorted out uh, at the federal level. Joe Biden is clearly emotionally tied to the labor movement. He, he likes the labor movement. He feels good about it. He and Trump had a very, very good relationship, but it's got to go beyond that. It, it's got to go beyond saying. Yeah, I, I really respect workers. I really, you know, I want to be on their side. We've got to do fundamental things and we've got to do them fast. First off, they should rename the PRO Act, which is, uh, you know, a piece of legislation that makes it easier for unions to organize and collectively bargain. Should be named, renamed the Richard Trump Act. You know, I mean, let's honor Trump really, uh, not by, not with, you know, you and I talking or memorial services. Let's honor him by passing a piece of legislation that actually does what he knew needed to be done, what other union leaders need to be done. Uh, and that should be done as uh, with a recognition of its urgency. That means that in the same way that we should get rid of the filibuster and uh, pass our democracy protections, we should also you know, work around the filibuster, get rid of it to pass the PRO Act. It's a vital, vital piece of legislation. If it doesn't get through now in short order, um, its potential impact is dramatically reduced. So that's one part of it. Uh, there's a lot of other things that frankly need to be done at the federal level. Uh, and again, I'll go for that line of militancy. I understand the idea of access and I understand the idea of you know leverage within and knowing people and all that. But uh, that you cannot sacrifice the core demands. Labor did not get what it needed out of Jimmy Carter. It did not get what it needed out of Bill Clinton. It did not get what it needed out of Barack Obama. And what have we seen over that period? Decline, decline, decline. If labor is to grow and to be as strong as it needs to be, it has to get what it needs, which is a removal of these barriers to organizing and collectively bargaining from the Biden administration. It has to come fast. John Nichols, such brilliance in such a short period of time. Thank you so much for, for sharing uh, you know, so much about Richard Trumka and his legacy and what needs to be done moving forward. Um, let's talk in soon. I look forward to it. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, John. Take care. Okay. Take care. We'll be right back with Senator Gustavo Rivera to talk about 
Andrew Cuomo. The fall of Andrew Cuomo. Back to the Nomi Key Show. I am thrilled to have old friend Senator Gustavo Rivera. He is the state senator for the 33rd District of New York State, and he's the chairman of the Committee on Health. Uh, that is the committee that is discussing uh, health care for all in New York, uh, which, how's that going? So let's just start with that, and then we'll get to the <laughs> burying the lead here. <laughs> first, yeah, first, first of all, it's a pleasure to see you, even though you're so you're so far away. Uh, and the way that that's going is that the the you're talking, of course, about the New York Health Act, which is a piece of legislation that I sponsor in the Senate, uh, and it would guarantee health care to every single New Yorker. It would create a single payer system in the, in the in the state of New York, and we have some real momentum going. Uh, we have more sponsors on it in the Senate than we've had in the entire uh, history of the bill. We have uh, we are we have had conversations within the conference about it, um, and I'm having conversations with the leadership about really digging deep into the details of the bill because we recognize how fundamental a shift it would be in how we deliver care. And we want to make sure that we get it right because we recognize that when, not if, but when we get it right, we then can offer a model for the rest of the country. So um, I feel I feel really good about that. And also, uh, since there's actually a shift, shall we say, a change in the uh, in the leadership of our state, um, we might have somebody who is, uh, I don't know, not a sociopath that we can speak to about this issue and so many others. Talk about burying the lead, right? I mean, OK, so obviously we're, we're, we're talking about Governor Cuomo uh, deciding, deciding sorry, to I'm step down. I mean, no forced, me, no me, no me. For former. former. No, 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 no. In 14 days, he is. 13 days. I'm uh, just, just Let's just call him former now. Let's just call him former now. Former. But, but I do have questions about this because this little mm. period... Yeah. I feel like, oh my God, there's just so much to discuss, Gustavo. I feel like we should Take just grab drinks, like Take get it time. out of our system and then go on air. And have, go this is coffee. <laughs> it's so early in the morning where you are. I know it's not, it is coffee. This is actually water. It's coffee. <laughs> um, all right. So, <laughs> so the 13 day period, Governor Cuomo, of course, um, said that he's resigning within 14 days. So it's 13 days now. Yep. I feel like this is like when, you know, the feds are storming your office. You're like, quick, burn all the papers, throw them out the window, put them in the dumpsters, throw them down the toilet, whatever it is, or the drugs or whatever, you know. Is there something to be said about like, okay, needs 14 days to make sure that he looks under the cushions, didn't leave any anything uh, that could further impl- implicate him in any other investigation because there's multiple investigations happening right now? Is this just yeah. speculation? Well, it, it was certainly we, we'd be speculating, but we'd be we'd be doing what is known as a as an educated speculation, uh, considering the guy that we're, who we're dealing with. I mean, look, the job of being governor is not a job at the gap. You don't have to give us two week notice, sir. You should just go right now. So I've I've um, I, I, I am of the mind that we should be looking very closely at what happens in the next two weeks. Uh, so to make sure that any type of irregularity is noticed. Um, there is no reason why the Lieutenant Governor can't take over today, but the governor, the former governor, uh, is saying that he's gonna be like a 14 day period. Um, we're not exactly sure what that means, but we're but we're gonna be looking at it very closely. At the end of the day, we are, I'm just happy that we are having this discussion about the next governor as opposed to the last governor. So Senator Rivera, um... I remember a few years back, you you were telling me about these 
phone calls he used to get. And, and, you know, back then we couldn't talk about it publicly, but I feel like we're in space now where you can, you can say these things. Uh, oh. A man that used to work for uh, Governor Cuomo, um, who's now in jail, mm-hmm. uh, used to call you. And, and what would he do? His name was Joe Prococo. Who yeah. is Joe Prococo and why is he significant? And what would he used to do to you? So the first thing is that this is something that I've talked about before, because even though I will admit, uh, so I've been in the legislature for 11 years. Let's start there. And he has been, he has, he was governor <laughs> for this entire period of time. I still can't get up, by the way, I still got to tell you, it's the day after. I'm still thinking, is somebody pranking us? Because this is just too good to be true. <laughs> somebody who has dealt with this guy for my entire legislative career. But at the beginning of my career, I would say that much like a lot of people uh, still to this day, up until last week, I would say, were a little bit scared of him. I certainly was was scared of him and, and of his political power early on in my tenure. Um, and there's certain things that happened that I was not, that I did not speak about for years, but I have been speaking about this stuff for years. In the, in this case, uh, there's a gentleman uh, by the name of Joe Prococo, who, yes, is imprisoned uh, for, he was convicted on different charges of... Pay uh, to uh, play. Pay to play, or just, it, it, ultimately he was, he, 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 went, he went away. Uh, but he was actually the closest advisor, like the right-hand man to uh, Governor Cuomo. So that meant, uh, I called it, I called it getting percocoed. And getting percocoed was because Joe Percoco would never call you to ask you about the weather, how your favorite sports team was doing, how your kids are doing. He would only call you to tell you how you done messed up with the governor and why you were wrong. And what you had to do to get in his good graces. And so I got a couple, I got a couple of calls. The one that I recall the best was actually, I started getting in trouble, in trouble with this guy right, right at the beginning. I should have known there was a pattern there. Right in 2011, when I was first in, when I was first sworn in, there was a whole conversation about the renewal of a personal income tax surcharge on wealthier New Yorkers. We called it the millionaire's tax. Um, and it, it, I was insisting that it needed to be re- renewed because it gave us about four and a half billion dollars in revenue that we kind of needed for, I don't know, education, healthcare, et cetera, et cetera. And the governor- oh, Come on, uh, even if it went to education, they wouldn't give it to, that, well, to the schools. There's, just there, leave there, it there. There's that, there's that. But, but let's just say I was like, we can't leave revenue on the table, particularly if I'm asking the poor and working class people that I represent to sacrifice further. And we're just saying a family of four who, you know, who is $800,000 in the Upper West Side, you know, they can pay a little bit more to make sure that poor and working class people get taken care of. But the point is that the governor did not want to renew it. And I remember that I was actually, I had had the conversation directly with the governor, like telling him that he should renew it. I had the conversation with Prococo as well, but then I went one step too far, which is I did a, I was, I participated in a protest in front of the governor's mansion in Albany. And so I said on a speaker, exactly the same thing that I had told the governor to his face about why I thought this was bad policy. And then uh, this was a Saturday, there was a conference up in Albany that happens every year. And on Sunday, there was gonna be a reception in the governor's mansion. And so it's a Saturday as the protest, a couple of hours after the protest, I get a call from an Albany number and I pick up. And I said, hello, so I said, hello, Senator, this is uh, Joe Pacoco from the governor's office. Like, I don't know where he works from, who he works for. And I said, hey, Joe, how you doing? It's like, well, I'll tell you, we're li- I'm actually gonna quote him almost directly. He's like, we're a little bit uh, disappointed in you over here today. Let me ask you something, let me ask you something. Was that you in front of the governor's mansion today? And I said, yes, Joe, that was me, but did you hear what I said? No, that's not the point. Was that you in front of the governor's mansion today? It's like, yes. I was like, well, what makes you think that you're gonna go 
in front of a man's house one day and protest and then come in the next and enjoy his wine and hors d'oeuvres, you're uninvited. Don't come tomorrow. <laughs> and I'm like, well, Joe, if the governor doesn't want me at his at, at his reception, then I won't be there. But what I said is something I said to you, something I said to him, and something that I will continue saying. We need this tax to be extended. You have a good day, Senator Click. So that's the type of thing that he would do, that they would do all the time. They would call people, threaten them, bully them. This is the way that they did business. Uh, and, and that's the one thing. This report that came out from the attorney general just, you know, just showed us a particular aspect of just this is this is another dirty chapter in what is a book full of the way that they do business. He the the, the acts that he that I believe these women and I believe what what he what they what they've said he did to them as far as harassment, as far as assault, et cetera. This is just a continuation of the psychology of this guy. Like this is who he's always been. And for those of us who have dealt with him in governmentally. We know, and this is one thing that I've been trying to say consistently over the last couple of years, particularly over the last two years, this does not make good policy. Because this argument that just, you know, it's just, you got to be hard driving and, and be kind of a bully to get things done. It's like, that's not, that's not good leadership. And it doesn't cause good governance. Uh, and the policies that have been, that we've actually asked questions about in the last couple of years, in particular, just a demonstration of that. These are, the, there's so many policy decisions that were made by this administration during the entire time that he was governor that has so much more to do with making the governor look good and not necessarily solving the problems of New Yorkers. So I am, I am glad that he is gone. Well, it's, it's so interesting you say making the governor look good because I think one of the biggest examples of that was the IDC that um, held up so much oh, yes. progress, Them. so much progress. Uh, and of course you... Yeah, one thing. One thing I think, folks, you, you know, you, Senator Rivera, you've been in office for eleven years, but you know, you unseated a. Uh, well, there was a corruption scandal in your district, I should say. So maybe, maybe let's start off with that. Can you just explain what happened? You represent the Bronx, yeah, um, parts of the Bronx, and uh, there was a machine there, and you challenged it, and you won, and and. So and, very briefly, because it happened so long ago that I have to, I barely remember it. Know me. I had so long ago, stay off my lawn, kids. Um, so 11 years ago, I defeated a guy whose name was Pedro Espada. And he was, after I defeated him, he served six years in federal prison for stealing public money. Uh, he had a, a nonprofit that he kind of like stole money from a Medicaid clinic in the South Bronx. I mean, it's just like stuff that you can't make up. And the district that I represent, I should tell you really quickly, um, and you know this, but your, your viewers might not, the people, the two senators that were there before that guy, also went to jail for violating the public trust. Um, and when I challenged this guy, the, the, the political machine at the time, they had kind of a non-aggression pact with him. So they were like, could you not, you know, cause then he might get angry and come at us. And there was a whole thing. And I said, no, 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 this guy needs to go and I'm gonna take him out. And so I did, but it was, so, so there is, so the district I represent the 33rd district in the Northwest Bronx is a, uh, a working class district that has a lot of needs. It's had a lot of needs for my entire time and for my entire tenure. Uh, and you know, it, it's and, and as you said, the 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 corruption that has existed in a lot of these places, sometimes for a long time. I mean, I've been there eleven years, which makes me the one senator after I served my first day in my in my sixth year. That meant that I had spent more time there without going to prison <laughs> than the little three people before me combined. So there was like there was some history there. Yeah. So you know, with that being said. Um, 
you have throughout your tenure up until a couple of years ago, uh, been in a minority when you should have been in the majority uh, in the Senate, the Democrats. Uh, and and you were part of this this big campaign, of course, to challenge the, the IDC, uh, meaning on the Senate side as a Democrat, you know, knowing that the IDC was holding up so much of you know, the legislation. But you talked about the governor's image. It was an image uh, uh, protector for the governor. The governor didn't want to be seen, you know, vetoing uh, the New York Health Act or, you know, uh, or even basic bills like codifying Roe v. Wade. Exactly. You know, things like this were being held up. Um, but it was a crazy scheme. Can you just like, how much has the Senate shifted? How much has, the, has there been a tectonic shift oh my God. in New York State since the IDC went down? And would he have gone down if the IDC had not gone down? Which the, the answer to your last question is absolutely not. If the IDC was still there, he would still be there. Uh, and the tectonic shift, that's the best way to describe it. It certainly has been an absolute shift. But just, and I'm sure that you, you know, you've talked to your, your viewers know about the IDC because they're talk, you talked about it plenty. Internally, what it meant for us in the Senate was that you we were we were relegated to the minority because they had this group of people who then cut a deal with the Republicans with the wink and a nod from the governor. And saying, yeah, go ahead and cut that deal so that the governor could always say, hey, I would go further and I would do more. But these Republicans, you know, I can't I, I can't do it because the Republicans are in the majority. And even when the when we had more Democrats than Republicans, then they went ahead. The IDC went ahead and thought that we were you know, in a in a in a parliamentary system and went and did a, a joint deal with the Republicans to jointly share the majority, which is something that had never been done. and. It is unbelievable. Like this is the gov the governor tried to convince people it's like this happened without his involvement. That is ridiculous, silly, and without merit whatsoever. How are you? Blake, going Blake to say, Zaff reported on this that he actually helped orchestrate this. Yeah, absolutely. This is and this is a this is a known secret, so to speak. This is a, one of the best, the worst kept secrets that he was absolutely involved in letting this thing happen because he he could have stopped it at any time, but he didn't because it served his interests and it served his purposes. He always wanted to be the one that determined what was what was able to happen. It had to be done in his way. Uh, and by by having the Republicans be in the majority and, and, then having, uh, and then having the IDC maintain that majority for the Republicans, then it meant that he never had to go as far as people wanted him to go on issues all across the board. And as far as the tectonic shift, as soon as we became the majority, we got voting rights, like the voting, the, uh, voting rights stuff done immediately. We passed, as you referred to, the Women's Equality, no, Women's Equality Act, but the, um, the, the, we codified Roe v. Wade. We got some housing legislation done that actually expanded voting uh, rights for tenants in ways that we had never seen before. We managed to get just this year, we managed to legalize cannabis with social justice at its core being a model for the rest of the country looking at the harm that the drug wars caused over time, we've gotten so many things done since we became a majority. L reform. And this had, exactly. So all of it has been a, a tectonic shift. And it was possible to go back to the question that you asked at the end, because the IDC was defeated. Because there were many of us who felt internally that this was never going to be different unless the IDC was defeated. And there were folks out there I figure many folks that actually watch your show and you're one of them as well, that just started to talk about the realities of this and then started organizing to make sure that these people would leave. And then the shift that year when we got, there were eight IDC members and that six of them were knocked out at once. It, it was the type of thing that I, I certainly couldn't have believed if I didn't see it. And if it wasn't for that, 
this guy would still be there because it, this tectonic shift meant that we're no longer we were no longer willing to put up with the, what the governor had done for his entire tenure. And although it it was, I tell you, as somebody who has been a critic of the governor for a long time, it was it was lonely at times. It was um, it was lonely and painful at times because this governor acted to retaliate against me because of the things that I because of what I uh, because of the of the way that I stood up to him. There were times that he did not sign legislation, particularly because it had my name on it. There were times when he had there were internal discussions that I learned about afterwards or resources that could have gone to my district specifically did not because I was the one that represented that district. And so I just had to, it was one of the things I had to live with for a while. It's like, I have to continue standing up for this guy, but if I do that, and this is the type of thing that other people had to contend with. Like, if you do that, you have to live with the consequences. And that means that your constituency might be harmed, which is again, I cannot tell you, I'm still on cloud nine and I cannot believe that the era of Cuomo is done. I, it's, I mean, we got 13 more days for him to do some stuff and I hope he doesn't, but it is, but it is, uh, it's, it's wild to think about it. Um, it's been 24 hours. I mean, yeah, th- th- this, this leads to my final question, which is um, the way that business has been conducted, it's almost, we're all conditioned to not speak up about certain things or, or not create a fuss over certain things because the Cuomo ecosystem, which I think is tied to other, you know, other. Sorry, did you say the Cuomo ecosystem? Ecosystem, but I'll say ecos. I like that. That's even better. Oh my God. Ecosystem. Write that down. Write that down. (laughs) The Cuomo ecosystem. I'm going to use that later on today. I'm going to use it. Okay. Thank you. You gave me something. Accidental. Um, Yeah. So the Cuomo ecosystem, there, there, there were folks out there who would, you know, spread misinformation, pitch stories to the press. We saw what they did with Lindsay uh, Boylan, how they released her file uh, and tried, you know, really sexist attacks against her, making her look crazy. I mean, it's, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's the old uh, playbook, but it up at a time when social media and, and just journalism is in decline. Um, and I think as a result, they were able to get away with it. They used fear and the fact that the state of the media is, is just weaker than it's been in a long time. And people, you know, unfortunately, I think you should have gone down with the Moreland Commission. But, you know, there, were, there had to be like 15 other scandals, uh, not to mention these mini, mini situations, which even what they did to you could have been a scandal mm-hmm. um, in yeah. any other administration. And that's just that's right. one example. But See. now that he's, he's the, the ecosystem is collapsing, I guess I'm, I'm wondering, like, how will business be conducted now? I mean, this is a new world. And uh, I think that part of it, let's, let's talk briefly about the person who's going to replace him immediately. And that is Kathy Hochul. Kathy Hochul is a former uh, Congress member, uh, upstate, uh, an upstate Congress uh, Western, member. Western, Western. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I forget. You're, you're I forget. speaking to a Buffalonian here. Yeah, no, no, she I'm actually sorry, represented sorry, our sorry. district. <laughs> exactly. So a Western New Yorker uh, who is, who certainly, while she's certainly a moderate, there's no, you know, you can't can't question that. Uh, and there's certainly positions that she's taken over the years that I have disagreements with her on. And I'm sure that we will have some, some clashes as far as policy is concerned. First of all, and this is not a joke when I say this, she is not a sociopath. And there's a lot to be said for someone who first is not a sociopath. And second, even though she might disagree with you on policy, actually cares about governance and understands it. In a way, it's a little bit like Joe Biden. Like Joe Biden is somebody that we can have a lot of disagreements on policy, and I certainly do, but you, have, you can tell that he cares about public, public service, and he actually thinks about how to actually move policy to actually make, it, make, it, make life better for people. And I believe he has a misunderstanding of how to do some of that stuff, right? But 
the fact that we are we are starting at least with that. So I think that this new version of of governance in in the state of New York, we're starting from scratch. Um, I think that in the next in the next couple of months, which will be incredibly challenging for the lieutenant governor, uh, she's going to have to clean house. Uh, there's a lot of people now. the The good thing is that the toadies and most of these uh, most of the of the the really loyal people have left. Um, you know, some of them have you know they've been escaping like rats escaping the Titanic for the last couple of weeks. Um, and so she will have a little bit, a little bit more cleaning to do, but less than she would have if this happened a couple of months back. Um, and then she will have in the legislature, and, and I say this openly, and I've already told her and her team this, she has my full support. We got work to do, whether it's the programs that, um, there's a, a historic program that we were able to secure in the state of New York in our, in our budget this year called the Excluded Workers Fund which is over $2 billion in basically what is unemployment insurance for undocumented people. This is state money that we got to be able to provide to people that didn't get any benefits at all during the pandemic. Now that program is basically not functioning because it hasn't been set up because they've been so worried about protecting his political future or the uh, billions of dollars, almost $3 billion in federal money for the ERAP program, which is the Emergency Rental Assistance Program, and you have people, thousands of them, and certainly many of them, many, many of them are in my district, who are potentially going to lose their homes uh, if they don't get, if, if we don't actually get to be able to pay back rent. And there's almost $3 billion that hasn't moved out the door because they haven't set up the program. Or to stick on this one for a second, there's an, there's a, an eviction moratorium that is going to expire on, the, on, on, on August 31st, just a few weeks from now. And we have to actually talk about how we potentially expand that. So all these things, they were not possible to talk about because we were worried too much about this damn crisis. Now with this new governor, that means that we can start from scratch and we can say, Governor Hochul, we have all these things to talk about. So let's talk, and let's also talk about all the bills that are currently passed in the assembly and the Senate that are sitting unsigned because he has not had the time to even look at these bills or even consider signing them. So this is to say, it is a new day. It'll be a more normal place where we will not have a sociopath in charge and a malignant narcissist in charge. And there's something to be said about that. Okay. Um, we have to wrap in like 30 seconds, but, but I'm, I'm so glad that you brought up, you know, his, dis the, the distraction of this crisis, because there is this ongoing debate over whether or not to, to continue to impeach him, to go through the impeachment trial and, and prosecute him through that way. You should, but isn't that a we distraction? Should. It's 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 a distraction, but I don't think it's a distraction. I think it is accountability. Like resignation is not accountability. He can resign, but he needs to be held accountable for the things that he has done, and he needs to be held responsible for them. So the investigation should continue. Both of these things, we can do two things at once. We can have a governor who is doing the governance, and we can do the investigation at the same time. It is not a distraction. I believe it is necessary to do. Resignation is not accountability, and he needs to be held accountable for the stuff that he's done. Senator Gustavo Rivera, such a joy. It's great I, to see you. I, I can't wait to, you know, <laughs> eventually see you in person and share a barrito with you uh, yes. when I'm drinking Puerto again. Rican rum. <laughs> we need to share the Puerto Rican rum. As I oh said, my God, wait. coffee. Side note, coffee. Side note, last time, you know, I've been doing this documentary there and everybody on our show knows this. Um, they have doubled the price of it, just as a side note. I don't know if you've known that because I it was the, the company was bought out and they're doing smaller batches. Oh yeah, oh. capitalism at its finest. So be be aware next time you go down there. <sighs> I know, but it's still, but it is still a fantastic product. I should get one free at the duty free, so they make up yeah. for it. And it'd be worthwhile to share it with you anyway. So it's a pleasure to see you, Nomi. Hoping to see you in person real soon. Sounds good. Take care.
Welcome back to the Nomiki Show. We are so honored to have our dear friend, Benjamin Dixon. Ben Dixon on. He is the host of the Benjamin Dixon Show. He's here with audio only today, uh, but we're so grateful that he could make it. Ben, I have a lot I want to talk about with you, but um, these two stories, I just felt like, you you know, given given your, your constant uh, war against the right and your work online, um, I felt like this was a good one to discuss with you. So yeah. there's, there's two things that yeah. stuck out to me today. Uh, did you hear that Rand Paul is suspended from YouTube? Senator Rand Paul was suspended yeah. by YouTube for a week over his COVID denial yeah. and his mass claims. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. And, and what's bad is that we got suspended for a week for covering Donald Trump's misinformation about COVID. So our YouTube channel got the same level of punishment as a senator who has a who's been putting in a concerted effort to spread as much misinformation as he possibly can. Are you serious? Yeah. And when yeah, was no. this? I didn't know. This, uh, this was at the beginning of um, I would say July. It, it, it's been like a month or two, but we weren't able we weren't able to stream for an entire week. And they labeled it and they sent us the information. And it was a video that we played of Donald Trump giving analysis of his misinformation. And we got the same exact penalty as the Senator uh, Rand Paul, who makes every effort to spread misinformation when it comes to the pandemic as possible. So this is, I mean, we've been talking about this a lot lately. I know you and I have been talking about this and other hosts are talking about this. Um, and we talk about this on the show that there's, 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 there's a real problem with these companies and how they're managing the flow of information, the monetization of information, what information is being incentivized and what hosts are being incentivized. Um, you know, what's showing up in searches. I, you know, someone messaged me yesterday saying, I used to see you recommended all the time last year and you're never recommended, but right. people that they're not even interested in get recommended all the time. Um, you know, and I feel like sometimes when they do these things, it's performative with with Rand Paul and and with Marjorie Taylor Greene. But really, they need to go after the beast, the underbelly. Right. 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 No, I, I, I'm just thinking about that. I, I, I like the way that you frame that. So um, would you unpack what you mean a, a little bit more? Because I, I see what you're saying. And it's a it, it's something that I, I hadn't really. Honestly, I don't think I really consider that. Well, I guess what I'm saying is, so we we know a few things. We know that um, the right wing weaponizes hate speech. They weaponize right. misinformation. They weaponize uh, uh, challenging you know, science and challenging authority. Um, they weaponize the hate targeted at the others, whether it's people of color, immigrants, women. Um, and they perform better. Um, and they feed themselves because the algorithm right. plays off of the design of the algorithm. And and there was a, you know, the, the Google, uh, there's a woman who was hired to address these issues of racism and, and sexism on the internet and how the algorithm was biased. Uh, right. And then she uncovered it and Google fired her for that. So <laughs> misinformation is spreading faster is what I'm essentially saying. Um, I, I don't mean to cut you off, but now it came back to me. The part that I hadn't really considered was the connection between um, the algorithm, the misinformation, COVID-19. It, it, it's all it's all the same thing. Right. Yes. If you really think about it, it is the COVID misinformation, the reactionary right, the uh, January 6th. It's all fueled by the same kind of misinformation, algorithm, right leaning push. We're so so we're not only fighting bigotry, but we're fighting the technology that fuels the bigotry, That's right. too. That's right. 
well said, very well said. And it's, it's frustrating because it's, it's hard to conceptualize. And sometimes it reveals our, um, you know, even allies of ours, their, their unintentional bias, right? It's not, you know, that's the crazy thing. That's why critical race theory, as Shahid Buttar said earlier on the show today, that's why critical race theory is so important is so people understand there's systemic issues that lead to whether it's intentional bias or unintentional bias. And we have to be aware of what is facilitating that. And, and in today's age, you know, it used to be a lie would spread around the world in, you know, in 30 seconds or less or whatever the line was. Now it's, it's in an instant, it's propped up and boosted right. by troll accounts and whatever. <laughs> um, right. And it's not just the algorithm itself in its raw form, which we understand does have right. problems. Like we try to think of the algorithm as being um, 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 uh, unbiased because it's technology, but the people who create the algorithms, um, they put in their implicit biases and that fuels the lies and the misinformation because people like that. It, the, the Internet is not prepared to handle the salaciousness of, uh, of human desire. Mm. Well said. But um, one of the things that the internet is prepared for is you may have seen that this this was published by Natalie Martinez in Media Matters that five Republican candidates are administrators for administrators for a racist Facebook group that pushes conspiracy theories, mm. and they've all you know update the update here is that they've all left. Um, but you know this isn't just. These aren't like just candidates. This is Ron DeSantis. <laughs> this is this is Jim Renacci. Um, these are folks who are in office right now. Uh, these are people who came up with the Tea Party wins. Uh, you have somebody who's re- running for the House in Nevada, uh, the Senate in, in Virginia, Montana Senate, West Virginia uh, State Senate, uh, and then and then Dan Cren- Crenshaw was one of these administrators in the past and moderators. Wow. So these are folks that have gotten into office, but were very much part of this organizing this ecosystem of 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 hate and racism um and of course performing very very well again i i want to come back to these aren't accidents and these companies know what's going on and who's facilitating it that's right you know if if you and i were to create a facebook group and that that was pushing out you know covid facts i'm gonna guess it's not gonna do as well as ronda santis's uh racist (laughs) facebook group that's right. Look at what we're up against. I mean, this is a governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis. I did not know the story until just now. Know me, and um, I just they're they're able to get away with so much. And 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 one of the most critical things that we're faced with right now is the complete and total shattering of the left. The left was able to compete because we had you uh, know we had solidarity online, and we were able to fight back against this algorithm. But if you look at what's happening right now in the leftist circles, we don't have the kind of power necessary to fight back against the algorithm and the bigotry. That's that's so well said. I mean, you and I both came up in, in eras where uh, the left was organizing online. We're able to be, build our email list. If you're running for a campaign, much easier campaigns, uh, much easier. We're able to, uh, you know, share each other's shows. And and, and it's it, it, so much. If you want to start a show today, good luck. Good luck. Good luck. My God. <laughs> I feel bad for anyone. And I don't say that to keep people from doing it. I say that to say the algorithm is not in our favor. It is not in our favor right now. We have a lot we have uh, facing us. Ben, biggest challenge you think we're facing uh, in the next, you know, year and a half before, uh, actually less than a year and a half before um, we start to really undergo the campaigns that to, 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 to hold the house for progressives to win some of these seats. You've seen a lot of progressives run the last few years, but what do you think is our biggest challenge? 
Um, so it's going to be twofold. The, 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 the one I've already mentioned, which is the successful um, obliteration of the organizing power of the online left that has been completely fractured. And, and unless we reunify in some fashion or build a new alliance, we won't be able to fight back against the onslaught from the establishment against people like Nina Turner. And so when, when the left started fracturing after the 2021 election, I, the, one of the number one things I pointed to was that the result will ultimately be a weakening in the power structure of progressives uh, because of all the infighting. And I think that's the number one thing. This number two, well, the actual number one thing uh, is going to be COVID-19 and the Delta, Delta Plus variant, because we're, we're, we're facing some numbers right now that are terrifying. And I think that's going to have impact um, if we don't get it under control. Which is why this misinformation needs to be <laughs> taken seriously. Yeah. Ben Dixon. No, Next time, come you. on for longer, and I want to see your lovely face. I will. I'm going to get this camera situation worked out. Thanks so much for having me. All good, me. all good. We all have these, you know, listen, I have this light that I can't control right now. It's like I keep moving it around, and it doesn't, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much for having listen, me. Listen, we talk. We don't do, yeah. <laughs> you're, you're better at technology than I am. I, I get these comments like, you're, you know, she's got to fix herself. I'm on the road, guys. Like, I'm not, a, like, we're all on the road right now. We're, I'm not in a studio. It's just, exactly. I'm on the road, too. variants so. under control. You know, yeah, absolutely. thanks, Ben. Hope to see you soon. Bye-bye. All right. Thank you to all of our guests today. This was a crazy show. Let's see if I can remember them from the top of my head because it's been a crazy two hours. We had a Shahid Buttar, Harvey K, Professor Harvey K, John Nichols, Gustavo Rivera, and Benjamin Dixon join us today. Did I miss anybody? Did I miss anybody, Brad? Did I get them all? I think I got everybody. But thank you to everybody for joining us. And thank you to all of our lovely patrons who've been sending the nicest notes. Um, you know, I really do appreciate it. But, uh, you know, this is, I say these things, we talk about these things more because we have to do something about them. And that's why I think, you know, when we discussed it with Ben just now, it's about what can we do? And first step is really just being aware. And, you know, when, when somebody steps up, whether it's a woman or a person of color, and they talk about some of the things that are happening to them, and they're doing that with courage, and they are faced with retaliation, smears, attacks, being called whiny, or, or whatever it is, um, victims, you know, maybe pause and say, well, maybe there's something else here. Maybe there's something else. And I, I, I'm just really grateful to everybody who tunes into our show regularly and subscribes and likes and shares the show and sends kind notes and guest suggestions and topic suggestions. And of course our patrons, uh, we're just eternally grateful to you. You've, you've made this experience so much better than uh, we can imagine. And so even on the tough days when we get tough, tough notes and feedback, um, we get really lovely ones. Uh, it shows what kind of solidarity uh, you, you guys are all in for. And that's why we always end the show with Stay in Solidarity. We'll see you on Fem Friday. The No Mickey Show. Clash momentarily for class solidarity. Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency. Greed from elites, oligarchs stay fed. Deep state, faith fed, everybody break bread. Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion in this melted pot. We live in time to build a new system. Unionize labor rights, highlight the issue. Talking heads left is best. The saga continues. continues. The No Miki Show.